Hello and welcome to Womance's Jane Eyre Public Access Read Along. You too can become a sponsor. joining our Patreon. It's because of listeners like you that we're able to do the Jane Eyre Public Access read-along. I am Isabeau, and I read the even chapters. I'm Morgan. I read the odd chapters. This week, we're reading chapter 32, which means that I am your co-captain on this journey into air. Boop, boop. Uh, and I am the skipper who does the recap this week. So Jane has settled into her new job. She's dealing with the fact that she thinks it's beneath her to teach all of these, like, poor country kids. Um, and she feels like she's fallen in life. Um, and she's, you know, reflecting on She's like, I know that makes me a bad person, but that's how I feel. Um, and I'll be a good person once these kids get smart like me. Which is, okay, Jane. Uh, and then Sinjin shows up and he's, like, ruminating on how he dreams of being a missionary because he gets to be if he hates being a reverend and he wants to be an orator a senator and a soldier and uh have a luminous literary career and so the best path forward is being a missionary and then who should show up but the lady the like daughter of the one wealthy person in the community who owns the needle factory what's her name her name is rosamond her name is rosamond how could i forget i kept wanting to call her olivia but Rosamond shows up and it turns out it's pretty obvious that Sinjin is carrying a torch for her. And why wouldn't he? Because she's lovely. And she's also kind of dumb in that way that like truly lovely people who have had lovely lives can be dumb. But they're like so kind. Like why bother not liking it? And it's like, whoa, Jane seems like super into her for a minute too. And then Jane's like, Ugh. And then weirdly at the end, Sinjin and Rosamond just walk their separate ways after having a conversation over Jane for like 15 minutes. And Jane is like the kid who was waiting for the couple to stop making out in front of their locker and finally gets to go to their locker. She is merely grateful that they did not acknowledge her. Hashtag relatable. I've been, if you are currently the kid who gets the couples making out in front of your locker and you're too cowed to say anything to them i've been there and i um now have a podcast where i read a book to my friend so tracks (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna stay on this path until you die you'll be fine Also, tell them to follow COVID protocol. Yeah, tell them to follow COVID protocol. It doesn't really get, like, better, but it does get different. It gets different. With that, chapter 32. I continued the labors of the village school as actively and faithfully as I could. It was truly hard work at first. Some time elapsed before, with all my efforts, I could comprehend my scholars and their nature. Wholly untaught, with faculties quite torpid, they seemed to me hopelessly dull, and, at first sight, all dull alike. But I soon found I was mistaken. They were dull in different ways. (laughs) (laughs) There was a difference amongst them. Amongst the educated, and when I got to know them and they me, this difference rapidly developed itself. Their amazement at me, my language, my rules and ways, once subsided, I found some of these heavy-looking, gaping rustics wake up into sharp-witted girls. Jesus. 
girls enough. Many showed themselves obliging and amiable too, and I discovered amongst them a few examples of natural politeness and innate self-respect, as well as of excellent capacity that won both my goodwill and my admiration. These soon took a pleasure in doing their work well, in keeping their persons neat, in learning their tasks regularly, and acquiring quiet and orderly manners. Their rapidity of their progress in some instances was even surprising. And an honest and happy pride I took in it. Besides, I began personally to like some of the best girls, and they liked me. <laughs> I had amongst my scholars several farmers' daughters, young women grown almost. These could already read and write and sew, and to them I taught the elements of grammar and geography, history, and the finer kinds of needlework. I found esteemable characters amongst them, characters desirous of information and disposed for improvement, with whom I passed many a pleasant evening hour in their own homes. Their parents then, the farmer and his wife, loaded me with attentions. There was an enjoyment in accepting their simple kindness, and in repaying it by a consideration, a scrupulous regard to their feelings, to which they were not, perhaps, at all times accustomed, and which both charmed and benefited them. Because, while it elevated them in their own eyes, it made them emulous to merit the deferential treatment they received. Turns out if you're nice to people, they like it. I felt I became a favorite in the neighborhood. Wherever I went out, I heard all sides cordial salutations and was welcomed with friendly smiles. To live amidst general regard, though it be but the regard of working people, is like... <laughs> I'm sorry. Is like sitting in sunshine, calm and sweet, serene inward feelings bud and bloom under the ray. At this period of my life, my heart far oftener swelled with thankfulness than sank with dejection. And yet, reader, to tell you all, in the midst of this calm, this useful existence, after a day passed in honorable exertion amongst my scholars, and even spent in drawing or reading contentedly alone, I used to rush into strange dreams at night. Dreams, many-colored, agitated, full of the ideal, the stirring, the stormy. Dreams where amidst unusual scenes charged with adventure, with agitating risk and romantic chance, I still again and again met Mr. Rochester, always at some exciting crisis, and then the sense of being in his arms, hearing his voice, meeting his eye, touching his hand and cheek, loving him, being loved by him. The hope of passing a lifetime at his side would be renewed with all its first force and fire. Then I awoke. Then I recalled where I was and how situated. Then I rose up on my curtainless bed, trembling and quivering. And then the still, dark night witnessed the convulsion of despair and heard the burst of passion. By nine o'clock the next morning, I was punctually opening the school. Tranquil, settled, prepared for the steady duties of the day. Rosamond Oliver kept her word in coming to visit me. Her call at the school was generally made in the course of her morning ride. She would canter up to the door on her pony, followed by a mounted livery servant. Anything more exquisite than her appearance in her purple habit, with her Amazon's cap of black velvet placed gracefully above the long curls that kissed her cheek and floated to her shoulders, can scarcely be imagined. And it was thus she would enter the rustic building and glide through the dazzled ranks of the village children. She generally came at the hour when Mr. Rivers was engaged in giving his daily catechism lesson. 
keenly, I fear, did the eve of the visitress pierce the young pastor's heart. A sort of instinct seemed to warn him of her entrance, even when he did not see it, and when he was looking quite away from the door, if she appeared at it, his cheek would glow, and his marble-seeming features, though they refused to relax, changed, indescribably, and in their very quiescence came expressive of a repressed fervor, stronger than working muscle or darting glance could indicate. Of course, she knew her power. Indeed, he did not because he could not conceal it from her, in spite of his Christian stoicism, when she went up and addressed him and smiled gaily, encouragingly, even fondly in his face, his hand would tremble and his eye burn. He seemed to say with his sad, resolute look, if he did not say it with his lips, I love you, and I know you prefer me. It is not despair of success that keeps me dumb. If I offered my heart, I believe you would accept it, but the heart is already laid on a sacred altar. The fire is arranged round it. It will soon be no more than a sacrifice consumed. And then she would pout like a disappointed child. A pensive cloud would soften her radiant vivacity, and she would withdraw her hand hastily from his, and turn in transient petulance from his aspect, at once so heroic and so martyr-like, St. John, no doubt, would have given the world to follow, recall, retain her, when she thus left him. But he would not give one chance of heaven, nor relinquish, for the elysium of her love, one hope of the true eternal paradise. Besides, he could not bound all that he had in his nature, the rover, the aspirant, the poet, the priest, in the limits of a single passion. He could not, he would not renounce his wide field of mission warfare for the parlors of the peace of Vale Hall. I learnt so much from himself in an inroad I once, despite his reserve, had the daring to make on his confidence. Miss Oliver already honored me with frequent visits to my cottage. I had learnt her whole character, which was without mystery or disguise. She was coquettish, but not heartless, exacting, but worthlessly selfish, but not worthlessly selfish. She had been indulged from her birth, but was not absolutely spoilt. She was hasty, but good-humoured. Vain, she could not help it, when every glance in the glass showed her such a flush of loveliness. But not affected, liberal-minded, innocent of pride of wealth, ingenious, sufficiently intelligent, gay, lively, and unthinking. She was very charming, in short, even to a cool observer of her own sex like me. Cool observer? <laughs> yeah, you're playing it real cool here, Jane. <laughs> Take my kerchief to mop your brow. <laughs> playing it so dang cool. But she was not profoundly interesting or thoroughly impressive. She wasn't thoroughly impressive, just like minorly impressive. <laughs> what I wouldn't give. <laughs> A very different sort of mind was hers from that, for instance, of the sisters of St. John, or St. John. Still, I liked her almost as I liked my pupil Adele, except that <laughs> <laughs> the six-year-old. Justice for Adele, justice for Rosamond. Except that, for a child whom we have watched over and taught, a closer affection is engendered than we can give an equally attractive adult acquaintance. 
so had taken an she had taken an amicable caprice to me. She said I was like Mr. Rivers, only certainly she allowed not one-tenth so handsome, though I was nice, neat, little soul enough, but he was an angel. I was, however, good, clever, composed, and firm like him. I was a lucis nature, she affirmed, as a village schoolmistress. She was sure my previous history, if known, would make a delightful romance. One evening, while... (gasps) You're just going to breeze past that? What would you like to say about it? Well, it's true. She seems like remarkably astute. <laughs> right? For someone who's not who's like thoroughly impressive. Only passively impressive. <laughs> right? Yeah, she seems to have your number pretty well. Rosamond fucking gets it. I hear that. One evening, with her usual childlike activity and thoughtless yet not offensive inquisitiveness, it's like... I guess this is what, like, a mean introvert would be, like, describing a very vivacious extrovert. Like, they don't, she doesn't have a reason to dislike her, so she's, she's just, like, capping her compliments to her. She's qualifying everything. But it also kind of reads as, like, someone who has a crush who doesn't want you to know they have a crush. Like, this is, this is a lot. There's a lot here. There's so much Rosamond here. Like, so much. One evening, well, with her usual childlike activity and thoughtless yet not offensive inquisitiveness, she was rummaging the cupboard and the table drawer of my little kitchen. She discovered first two French books, a volume of Schiller, a German grammar and dictionary, and then my drawing materials and some sketches included a pencil head of a pretty little cherub-like girl. One of my scholars and sundry views from nature, taken in the Vale of Morton and on the surrounding moors, she was first transfixed with surprise and then electrified with delight. Had I done these pictures? Did I know French and German? What a love, what a miracle I was. I drew better than her master, the first school in shh, boop. (laughs) Would I sketch a portrait of her to show to her papa? With pleasure, I replied, and I felt a thrill of artist delight at the idea of copying from so perfect and radiant a model. Yeah, an artist delight. I'm feeling artist delight sometimes too, Jane. (laughs) She had then on a dark blue silk dress. Her arms and neck were bare. Her only ornament was was her chestnut tresses, which waved over her shoulders with all the wild grace of natural curls. (gasps) Just like uh, Helen Burns. Just like Helen Burns. I took a sheet of fine cardboard and drew a careful outline. I promised myself the pleasure of coloring it, and it was getting late then. I told her she must come and sit another day. She made such a report of me to her father that Mr. Oliver himself accompanied her the next evening, a tall, massive-featured, middle-aged, and gray-headed man, on whose side his lovely daughter looked like a bright flower near a hoary turret. (laughs) (laughs) He appeared... A taciturn and perhaps a proud personage who was very kind to me. The sketch of Rosamond's portrait pleased him highly. He said I must make a finished picture of it. He insisted, too, on my coming the next day to spend the evening at Vale Hall. I went, 
I founded a large, handsome residence, showing abundant evidences of wealth in the proprietor. Rosamond was full of glee and pleasure all the time I stayed. Her father was affable, and when he entered into conversation with me after tea, he expressed in strong terms his approbation of what I had done in Morton School, and said he only feared, from what he saw and heard, I was too good for the place, and would soon quit in it for one more suitable. Indeed, cried Rosamond, she's clever enough to be a governess in a high family, papa. I thought I would far rather be where I am than in any high family in the land. Mr. Oliver spoke of Mr. Rivers, of the Rivers family, with great respect. He said that it was a very old name in that neighborhood, but the ancestors of the house were wealthy, that all Morton had once belonged to them. Even now, he considered the representative of that house might, if he liked, make an alliance with the best. He accounted it a pity that so fine and talented a young man should have formed the design of going out as a missionary. It was quite throwing a valuable life away. It appeared then that her father would throw no obstacle in the way of Rosamond's union with St. John. Mr. Oliver evidently regarded the young clergyman's good birth, old name, and sacred profession as sufficient compensation for the want of a fortune. Hmm. Interesting. Once again, so- Yeah. I can hold it. No. It's just that Jane is also like a lot of those things. Like she comes from Mm -hmm. a really old family and her father was a clergyman and she's a very accomplished young woman. Mm -hmm. Like she is Sinjin. Yeah. And Sinjin is her. Absolutely. But Sinjin is a man. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. the whole thing. Could be. What if this whole book is like a giant like if she were a man argument? We'll see. Because there is still something that Jane doesn't like about the fact that he's being a missionary and not like a writer or an orator. There's something there's something here about changing his dreams that she doesn't like. It was the 5th of November and a holiday. My little servant, after helping me to clean my house, was gone, well satisfied with the fee of a penny for her aid. All about me was spotless and bright, scoured floor, polished grate, well-rubbed chairs. I'd also made myself a neat and had now the afternoon before me to spend as I would. The translation of a few pages of German occupied an hour. Then I got my palette and pencils and fell to the more soothing, because easier occupation, of completing Rosamond's, Rosamond Oliver's miniature. The head was finished already. There was but the background to tint and the drapery to shade off, a touch of carmine too to add to the ripe lips, a soft curl here and there to the tresses, a deeper tinge to the shadow of the lash under the azured eyelid. I was absorbed in the execution of the nice details when, after one rapid tap, my door unclosed, admitting St. John Rivers. I am now, I am come to see how you are spending your holiday, he said. Not, I hope, in thought. No, that is well. While you draw, you will not feel lonely. You see, I mistrust you still, though you have borne up wonderfully so far. I have brought you a book for evening solace, and he laid on the table a new publication, a poem, one of those genuine productions so often vouchsafed to the fortunate public of those days, the golden age of modern literature. Alas, the readers of our era are less favored. But courage, I will not pause either to accuse or repine. I know poetry is not dead, nor genius lost, nor has Mammon gained power over either, to bind or slay. They will both assert their existence, their presence, their liberty, and their strength again one day. Perhaps in this very book. (laughs) Powerful angels safe in heaven, they smile when sordid souls triumph. The feeble ones weep over their destruction. Poetry destroyed. 
Genius banished? No. Mediocrity? No. Do they not let envy prompt you to the thought? No, they own, they not only live, but reign and redeem, and without their divine influence spread everywhere, you would be in hell, the hell of your own meanness. This is like an argument for like, I'm glad Twitter exists today. Because Charlotte Bronte could have said all of that on Twitter and then left it out of the book. And I think we would have been fine, if not the better off for it. We would have been the better off for it. Because like, that's clearly not Jane. That's clearly Charlotte being like, poetry's not dead, bitches. My sister writes poetry, actually. It's pretty good. So does my brother. We all write poetry. (laughs) Alone in Shropshire. And it's, like, good. Like, I know you think, like, oh, okay, like, I write poetry. No, like, we write, like, good poetry alone in Shropshire. Like, we're geniuses. Yeah. Even though I have to write it under the name Courier Bell. (laughs) While I was eagerly glancing at the bright pages of Merriman, for Merriman it was, St. John stooped to examine my drawing. His tall figure sprang erect again with a start. He said nothing. I looked up at him. He shunned my eye. I knew his thoughts well and could read his heart plainly. At the moment, I felt calmer and cooler than he. I had then temporarily the advantage of him. And I conceived an inclination to do him some good, if I could. With all his firmness and self-control, thought I, he tasks himself too far, lots every feeling and pang within, expresses, confesses, imparts nothing. I'm sure it would benefit him to talk a little about this sweet Rosamond, whom he thinks he ought not to marry. I will make him talk. I said first, take a chair, Mr. Rivers. But he answered, as he always did, that he could not stay. Very well, I responded, mentally, stand if you like, but you shall not go just yet. I am determined. Solitude is at least as bad for you as it is for me. I'll try if I cannot discover the secret spring of your confidence and find an aperture in the marble breast through which I can shed one drop of the balm of sympathy. Boy, she sounds a little like Rochester here. She does. And it's also reminding me of like how people get on their high horse and they're like, I don't watch reality television. I don't like all that drama. And it's like, look at all this like manufactured drama in Jane Eyre. No kidding. (laughs) Just leave him alone. (laughs) Seriously, he's sad. Is this portrait like? I asked bluntly. Like? Like whom? I did not observe it closely. You did, Mr. Rivers. He almost started at my sudden and strange abruptness. He looked at me astonished. Oh, that is nothing yet, I muttered within. I don't mean to be baffled by a little stiffness on your part. I'm prepared to go to considerable lengths. (laughs) Go, (laughs) Jay! I continued. You observed it closely and distinctly. But I have no objection to your looking at it again. And I rose and placed it in his hand. A well-executed picture, he said. Very soft, clear, coloring. Very graceful and correct drawing. Yes, yes, I know all that. But what of the resemblance? Who is it like? Mastering some hesitation, he answered, Miss Oliver, I presume. Of course. And now, sir, to reward you for the accurate guess, I will promise to paint you a careful and faithful duplicate of this very picture, provided you admit that the gift would be expe- acceptable to you. I don't wish to throw away my time and trouble on an offering you would deem worthless. He continued to gaze at the picture. The longer he looked, the firmer he held it, the more he seemed to covet it. It is like, he murmured. The eye is well managed, the color light, expression more perfect. It smiles. 
Would it comfort or would it wound you to have a similar painting? Tell me that. When you are at Madagascar or at the Cape or in India, would it be a consolation to have that memento in your possession? Or would the sight of it bring recollections calculated to enervate and distress? Man. Now for... I'm sorry, what? The two main feelings you experience after masturbating. (laughs) Both, Jane. He would feel both. (laughs) It would always be both. (laughs) He now furtively raised his eyes. He glanced at me, irresolute, disturbed. He again surveyed the picture. That I should like to have it is certain. Whether it would be judicious or wise is another question. Oh. Since I ascertained that Rosamond really preferred him, and that her father was not likely to oppose the match, I, less exalted in my views than St. John, had been strongly disposed in my own heart to advocate their union. It seemed to me that, should he become the possessor of Mr. Oliver's large fortune, that he might do as much good with it as if he went and laid his genius out with her, and his strong and his strength to waste under a tropical sun with this persuasion i now answered as far as i can see it would be wiser and more judicious if you were to take to yourself the original at once by this time he had sat down he had laid the picture on the table before him and with his brow supported on both hands hung fondly over it i discerned (laughs) i know it's so pitiful I discerned he was now neither angry nor shocked at my audacity. I saw even that by thus frankly addressed on a subject he had deemed unapproachable, to hear it thus freely handled was beginning to be felt by him as a new pleasure, an unhoped-for relief. Reserved people often really need the frank discussion of their sentiments and griefs more than the expansive. The sternest seeming stoic is human after all, and to burst with boldness and good will into the silent sea of their souls is often to confer on them the first of obligations. She likes you, I am sure, said I, as I stood behind his chair, and her father respects you. Moreover, she's a sweet girl, rather thoughtless, but you would have sufficient thought for both yourself and her. You ought to marry her. Does she like me? he asked. Certainly, better than she likes anyone else. She talks of you, continually. There's no subject she enjoys so much or touches upon so often. It is very pleasant to hear this, he said. Very. Go on for another quarter of an hour. (laughs) Oh my god, he like names the time. That's so cute. (laughs) And he actually took out his watch and laid it upon the table to measure the time. I thought it was just like a cute, nice thing to say. And now I'm like, oh god. (laughs) Sinjin. But where is the use of going on, I asked, when you are probably preparing some iron blow of contradiction or forging fresh chain to fetter your heart? Don't imagine such hard things. Fancy me yielding and melting, as I am doing, human love rising like a freshly opened fountain in my mind and overflowing with sweet inundation all the field I have so carefully and with such labor prepared, so assiduously sown with the seeds of good intentions, of self-denying plans, and now it is deluged with a nectarous flood, the young germs swamped, delicious poison cankering them. 
Now I see myself stretched on an ottoman in the drawing room at Vale Hall. At my bride, Rosamond Oliver's feet, she's talking to me with her sweet voice, gazing down on me with those eyes your skillful hand has copied so well, smiling at me with those coral lips. She is mine, I am hers. This present life and passing world suffice to me. Hush, say nothing. My heart is full of delight. My, sen my senses are entranced. Let the time I marked pass in peace. Oh, God. You have to do that in the... You melt in the privacy of your own home, Sinjin. <laughs> Don't have an audience. I, wow. But that's very erotic. <laughs> yeah, dude. I humored him. Chain. <laughs> <laughs> Watch ticked on. He breathed fast and low. I stood silent. Is he... <laughs> masturbating in front of her no it's fine <laughs> amidst this rush the quarter sped he replaced the watch laid the picture down rose and stood on the hearth. <coughs> now said he that little space was given to delirium and delusion i rested my temples on the breast of temptation and put my neck voluntarily under her yoke of flowers I tasted her cup. The pillow was burning. There is an asp in the garland. The wine has a bitter taste. Her promises are hollow. Her offers false. I see and know all this. I gazed at him in wonder. It is strange, pursued he, that while I love Rosamond Oliver so wildly, with all the intensity indeed of a first passion, the object of which is exquisitely beautiful, graceful, and fascinating, I experience at the same time a calm, unwarped consciousness that she would not make me a good wife, that she is not the partner suited to me, that I should discover this within a year after marriage. And that to 12 months rapture would succeed a lifetime of regret. This I know. Strange indeed, I could not help ejecting. While something in me, he went on, is acutely sensible to her charm, something else is deeply impressed with her defects. They are such that she could sympathize in nothing I aspired to, cooperate in nothing I undertook. Rosamond, a sufferer, a laborer, a female apostle, apostle, Rosamond a missionary's wife? No. But you need not be a missionary. You might relinquish that scheme. Relinquish? What? My vocation? My great work? My foundation laid on earth for a mansion in heaven? My hopes of being numbered in the band who have merged all ambitions in the glorious of one bettering their race? Of carrying knowledge into the realms of ignorance? Of substituting peace for war, freedom for bondage, religion for superstition, the hope of heaven for the fear of hell? Must I relinquish that? It is dearer than the blood in my veins. It is what I have to look forward to and to live for. <laughs> After a considerable pause, I said, And Miss Oliver? Are her disappointment and sorrow of no interest to you? Miss Oliver is ever surrounded by suitors and flatterers. In less than a month, my image will be effaced from her heart. She will forget me and will marry, probably someone who will make her far happier than I should do. You speak coolly enough, but you suffer in the conflict. You are wasting away. No, 
If I get a little thin, it is with anxiety about my prospects yet unsettled, my departure continually procrastinated. Only this morning I received intelligence that the successor whose arrival I have been so long expecting cannot be ready to replace me for three months to come yet, and perhaps the three months may extend to six. You tremble and become flushed whenever Miss Oliver enters the schoolroom. Again, the surprised expression crossed his face. He had not imagined that a woman would dare speak so to a man. For me, I felt at home in this sort of discourse. I could never <laughs> rest in communication with strong, discreet, and refined minds, whether male or female, till I had passed the outer works of the conventional reserve and crossed the threshold of confidence and won a place by their heart's very hearthstone. You are original, he said, and not timid. There is something brave in your spirit, as well as penetrating in your eye. But allow me to assure you that you partially misinterpret my emotions. You think them more profound and potent than they are, and you give me a larger allowance of sympathy than I have a just claim to. When I color, and when I shake before Miss Oliver, I do not pity myself. I scorn weakness. I know it is ignoble. A mere fever of the flesh. Not... I declare a convulsion of the soul. I declare that... it! <laughs> that <laughs> is just as fixed as a rock, firm set in the depths of a restless sea. Know me to be what I am, a cold, hard man. Okay. I smiled incredulously. <laughs> You have taken my confidence by storm, he continued, and now it is much at your service. I am simply in my original state, stripped of that blood-bleached robe with which Christianity covers human deformity, a cold, hard, ambitious man. Natural affection only of all the sentiments has permanent power over me. Reason, not feeling, is my guide. My ambition is unlimited. My desire to rise higher, to do more than others, insatiable. I honor endurance, perseverance, industry, talent, because these are the means by which men achieve great ends and mount to lofty eminence. I watch your career with interest because I consider you a specimen of a diligent, orderly, energetic woman, not because I deeply compassionate what you have gone through or what you still suffer. You would describe yourself as a mere pagan philosopher, I said? No, there is no difference between me and the deistic philosophers. I believe, and I believe the gospel. You missed your epithet. I am not a pagan, but a Christian philosopher, a follower of the sect of Jesus. As his disciple, I adopt his pure, his merciful, his benign benignant doctrines. I advocate them. I am sworn to spread them. When in youth to religion, she has cultivated my original qualities thus. From minute germ, natural affection, she has developed the overshadowing tree, philanthropy. From the wild, stringy root of human uprightness, she had reared a due sense of divine justice, of ambition to win power and renown for my wretched self. She has formed the ambition to spread my master's kingdom, to achieve victories for the standard of the cross. So much has religion done for me, turning the original materials to the best account pruning and training nature but she could not eradicate nature nor will it be eradicated to the more till this mortal shall put on immortality having said this he took his hat which lay on the table beside my palette once more he looked at the portrait she is lovely he murmured 
She's well named the Rose of the World, indeed. And may I not paint one like it for you? Cubono. No. He drew over the picture, the feet of the sheet of thin paper on which I was accustomed to rest my hand in painting to prevent the cardboard from being sullied. What he suddenly saw on this blank paper is impossible for me to tell, but something had caught his eye. He took it up with a snatch. He looked at the edge and shot a glance at me, inexpressibly peculiar and quite incomprehensible, a glance that seemed to take and make note of every point in my shape, face, and dress. For it traversed all, quick, keen as lightning, his lips parted as if to speak, but he checked the coming sentence, whatever it was. What is the matter? I asked. Nothing in the world, was the reply, replacing the paper. I saw him dexterously tear a narrow strip from the margin. It disappeared in his glove. With one hasty nod, good afternoon, he vanished. Well, I exclaimed, using the expression of the district that caps the globe, however. I, in my turn, scrutinized the paper, but saw nothing save a few dingy stains of paint where I tried to hint, tried the tint in my pencil. I pondered the mystery a minute or two, but finding it insolvable and being certain it could not be of much moment, I dismissed and soon forgot it. I think he found her real name. Yes. <laughs> also, for the first time in the entirety of this project, I wish that I had the digital copy because he said ambition so many times in his speech like i think that's the thing that jane objects to it is ambition mm. yeah oh that his- yeah that makes sense i can see yeah. that because she doesn't consider herself ambitious and so like his vain ambition his ambition to be more important to be puffed up than have an ambition greater than yeah like a loving home and being like an important person in the district. But she does not like that. But also by virtue of the fact that she feels pulled asunder by being less than a governess and can't help but to Mm -hmm. fixate on every time someone finds one of her new accomplishments. Like she herself is ambitious, you know? Totally. Like she is Sinjin. And I think that's her least favorite part of herself that she sees in him. And I wonder why she feels this, I mean, there is, like, the typical response of she does not see for herself what is so clear in another person, which is, like, this path to marrying Rochester. Although that would be bigamy, so never mind. (laughs) But it also doesn't seem like her greatest ambition is to marry Rochester. Like, I think you're right to say that she cares very much about her accomplishments. She cares very much about her talents. And, like what you said earlier about like if she were a man she'd be Sinjin like I think part of this seesaw of both recognizing herself in Sinjin but like pulling away from it is that she doesn't have his opportunities and he doesn't see the value of the things that like she's forced to choose yeah and he's electing to not choose the one path that she has available to her, which is like marriage. And he's like, I'm going to be a missionary. Um, I'm actually very much enjoying this journey with Sinjin in the mm-hmm. Moors. And I think I often reflect on this portion of the book as like, like a needless delay. Like it could be like 10 months later or something, not to give away what's coming up. 
But, like, it actually is, like, so pleasurable and, like, really is, like, I think critical to character development in a way I've never realized before because I've just been, like, swept up in the romance. But there's so much here. So much here. Like, Sinjin is so fascinating in all the ways that he parallels Jane and all the ways that he parallels Rochester. And this whole thing that Jane does, like, I'm going to get in and I'm going to be in your confidence. Like, she loves being in other people's confidence, but she does not like giving, giving her confidence. Ugh, it's so true. And it's so relatable it's to actually so relatable. be vulnerable. Like that's pretty frightful. And like, I love the like drama of this, but I also feel like this is a very sexy part of the book and like the most, or one of the most um, objectively sexual parts of the book. And the fact that both Sinjin and Jane are desirous of the same entity. So then when he's like, tell me more for a quarter of an hour. And he's like, don't even talk to me. I'm just going to stare at this picture. And she's like, cool, I'll stare at you and the picture so I can watch you appreciate the woman I also appreciate. So like. And talking about being like prostrate on an ottoman in front of her. uh, At her feet. Yeah. I I just, yeah, it's, like, very talking about her lips and her Mm -hmm. eyes. Like, it's so sensual. And Mm -hmm. it is absolutely weird in context. (laughs) Yeah. It's, like, super fucking weird. But I guess you got to take your opportunities when they come when you're writing a romance novel in the Victorian era. Yeah, she was, like, it's funny that you referenced Helen Burns because she definitely talked about Helen Burns' hair this way and, like, Helen Burns' chest like a bird yeah. and, like, her lightness. But this is, like, had Helen Burns been allowed to grow up? If Like, this, I this mean, is sexual attraction. The thing I'm most proud of is that Helen Burns is Rochester and Rochester is Rosamond. <laughs> you know? Like, she's got the type. She does absolutely have the type. Like, a beautiful, flighty wealthy yeah and it's beautiful and it also kind of highlights the fact that like everything that's beautiful about rochester is actually like the feminine beautiful as opposed to the mat like they talk about him being like very like having a hard face and like stubby fingers which are very masculine but there's something about that kind of etherealness that kind of manic pixie dream girlness about him that translates really well into rosamond i think even though rosamond is very well dressed and neat like you know they both have dark hair. Curly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I... Mm-hmm. They're both Byronic in their own way. And they both have this delight in transgression. Mm-hmm. Like the way Rosamond uh, has this really assumptive conversation in front of Jane when they first meet to Sinjin. Um and feels entitled to her transgressions, I think, because of her class and station and everything. She also feels entitled to Sinjin's admiration, and she knows that she has it. And so she, when he doesn't deliver what she both expects and knows is there, she's petulant. Just like Roger, the rest! Just like Roger, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly like Rochester. Um, if you'd like to know what we mean when we say the rest, uh... Orson Welles's Jane Eyre is now available on Hulu if you have a Hulu subscription. Um, what else? Anything else to be said about Chapter 32? I always disliked Sinjin, but I feel like in this reading with you and like 
having the time to both think and talk about him. The way that he works as a cipher of Jane is so much more compelling. I'm like, he is so compelling. Like, he feels trapped by his class and the landscape of Morton. Yeah. And he wants the big, expansive world, which is all that Jane also wanted before she met Rochester. Yeah. And so the fact that she, like, holds him, not in contempt, but, like, does not agree with his choices of not marrying Rosamond yeah. is, like, very telling about, like, how her heart has changed. Yeah, because she's gone through, like, she's like, I've been in the wilderness in a way that he kind of would be if he went out on mm-hmm. a mission to be a missionary. Like, she's been in the wilderness. She mourns and grieves for an old life that she thought was going to be less than. But even in the like the fever dream that she had in not this chapter, but the last chapter that you read, where she envisions herself in Marseille, in Rochester's French palatial residence, like being his mistress. And she talks about like the sun kissing her skin and like this hedonistic pleasure. And then she like turns from it. It's like, there's something here about the temptation of flesh for both of them and they both want it and like she turns away because of the bigamy and like that's fine and he turns away because of this ambition that his life with Rosamond would be too small yeah and I don't think he's wrong for recognizing that that his ambition would be too big for Rosamond one of the things I struggle with every day of my life is that I just have the one life yeah and how do I know if I'm doing the best with it and making the most of it. And I think Jane is likewise in this boat where she's like, I decided to make myself this very small person until I die to avoid what would have been a great adventure. And I think it's very telling that her dreams with Rochester are like some unknown conflict, right? Like she's kind of yearning for the drama and the heightened stakes. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I think any human being can relate to that. And being resentful of someone who's not making the same sacrifice you're making. Mm-hmm. But also knowing, like, it's resentful, but it's also, like, coming from a place of greater knowledge than Sinjin mm-hmm. has. Like, this is gone forever. Yeah, that, like, once you make a choice like this, the door closes. But it also comes from this place of, like, real recognition. Like, it's not that... Because she doesn't admire his ambition. That word was used like a thousand times. So it's clear to me that like there's something in that. But she recognizes it. Like she like there's there's no way that she can't, right? Like she like she's not stupid. She's not obtuse. Yeah. Yeah, this is very interesting. I, I like Sinjin so much more than I ever have before, which is a revelation. You know, people, if you're not talking about the books you're reading, you are missing out. <laughs> Seriously, it's so true. What a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, loosen at those Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah. <laughs>